Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, the market's moving a bit at the moment. The S&P 500 in the US was up nearly 6% last week. That's an extraordinary rise if you're not familiar with sort of how the market moves day to day. That's incredible, right? Nearly 6% is extraordinary. That's not far off what you would expect for a year if you have an average year. ASX 200 went the other way, fell below 7,000 points a couple of weeks back. It's retesting that mark. Some favorite stocks, if you're into ResMed or CSL, they've been absolutely pummeled. It's quite an interesting time. And when we see this sort of movement in the market, rather than that sort of sideways action we saw for quite a while, it's when investors start thinking about acting on their plans, or if they don't have a plan, think maybe they should get one. And we're starting to see volumes really rising at the moment, indicating that people are doing something. But it's always a bit of a disorientating time. So today I'm joined by Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. He is known to almost all of you, and he's by far our most popular guest. Every time people love hearing from him, he has the most extraordinary way of helping us understand what's going on and what we can do about it, right? How to set yourself up, regardless of what the next few weeks and months have in store. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Gemma, you're very welcome. That's very kind of you too. My mother is obviously getting her friends to listen and I appreciate her doing that. So <laughs> if, if that's helping the podcast, then that's that's wonderful, mate. Thank you for having me. Look, if it makes you feel any better, my mum would never listen to this. No. So, <laughs> so I could say all sorts of things. That's always helpful. <laughs> my mom, yeah. Um, not with my father, you know, no one, yeah, no yeah. no family, which is best. <laughs> not my husband or my kids either, actually. I feel your pain, I feel your pain. Yeah, well, it's probably best, actually, mm-hmm. to be honest. So let's talk markets. And I, I will say this up front. So anyone who doesn't follow Scott, I'm talking about X, Twitter. I call it Twitter. I'm going to keep it Twitter. Yeah. It's just easier to understand than X. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe the other social media. I don't know what else you're on. But Scott's one of the very few people where I'm like, a very good reason to follow you, right? You comment very thoughtfully. You manage a large audience. I imagine you have a lot of followers and people do respond to what you could post and you manage that audience extremely well and that you respond thoughtfully. You're never argumentative. It's really great just seeing what you have to say. And the market has rebounded in the US, certainly after a sell-off. Seen a little bit of a sell-off here and a little bit of a rebound, not to the same extent. And as a very, very well-known stock picker, one would imagine that this is the time that you're really, really wanting to pick the eyes out of your timing. And yet you put a comment on social media saying, this is not the time to time to <laughs> try to time the market. Uh, made me laugh. And I'm sure plenty of other people had some thoughts about that. Can you explain your logic? Yeah, absolutely. So my my point was not so much that, well, it was to not try and time the market, but I wasn't necessarily saying now isn't the time to time the market, but rather I find the, the uh, chasing of that objective reasonably futile because of the difficulty of it. So let me unpack that. Um, I'm never the smartest person in any room, right? And so I fall back on what things can I do reliably and regularly over a long period of time to give myself the best chance of investment success. And I don't reckon that should be out of the realm of or the reach of almost anybody listening to that. So if you need to be 
a master of the universe. If you need to have a complex system that goes perfectly right, if it doesn't go right, you're in trouble, then you're kind of setting yourself up in this higher wire act. Now, high risk, high reward is the sort of thing we think we like when the reward bit's in focus. When the risk bit's in focus, all of a sudden we realize we didn't want high risk at all. We just wanted to kind of make reasonable amounts of money on an ongoing basis. And so my general approach, Jim, is to look at the market. I'll get back to the stock picking thing too. But I look at the market and say, right, the market gains on average about 9% a year. It goes up about every two years out of three. And I can kind of just harness that for my own good without having to do anything else. And so I'm a stock picker, but let's start with ETFs. If I could get, and we don't know what the future will hold, of course, insert the usual uh, you know, disclaimers about the future looking like the past and all that kind of stuff. But you know, if I look at any of the long-term history of the stock market and say, at what point was it smart to bet against that? At what point was it smart to try and believe that you know, the future would be different to the past. Thus far, the answer has been never. And so I start in my own investing and certainly with people who are members of our investing services or are following me on Twitter or or Facebook, I still call it Twitter too, um, is to say, right, you want to lock in the market return. And then if you can get a bit more than that, go for it. And and that's honestly, as as long as you're a long-term investor, as long as you stay the course, and there's a lot of assumptions there, but assuming that's true, then that's where you want to start. And so my point was, uh, you're right, the S&P was up 6%. The ASX was up 3.1% last week. No one rang a bell on Monday morning and said, guys, you got to get in because equivalent to one third of a yearly gain is going to happen in the next five trading sessions. If you weren't there, if you weren't invested, if you were waiting for something mythically to happen uh, to, to somehow tell you it was right to invest or some sort of trading system, you simply missed out on a gain which you got by doing literally nothing just by being invested. And so that's that's my starting point, is trying to time the market means choosing when to be in and out. I have people, and even when I posted that tweet, because, oh, yeah, but this is just a, you know, it's a, it's a rally in part of a longer bull market, a bear market. Or when I've done this before, I think I did it in or maybe September. Someone said, oh, Monday, when Monday comes, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But trying to be too clever by half, I think, is a dangerous investing strategy when for most of us, saving regularly, investing prudently and staying long-term is about as complex as it needs to be. Now, we'll add some stock picking on top of that for sure, but timing the market or timing my investing is not what I do. I try and find companies I like at prices I like. That's different to saying I'm going to try and time the market, work out when to enter and exit, uh, trying to maximize my wealth that way. That's a really cool place to start because I think for many investors, and I've been asked about this a few times actually in the press, you know, what's happened to all the retail investors? Where did they go? Because volumes have fallen dramatically. I'm like, they haven't gone anywhere, Mm. to be frank. They're still sitting on what they have. Uh, They're certainly not selling and going to cash. Yeah, they're still invested by and large. You know, they have more cash sitting there waiting to go. And that's quite interesting. And so that probably is coming more to your point though that, if you're building up that cash balance, you need to think about what you might like to do with that. And obviously it makes everyone very anxious, the entry point, right? That's <laughs> the bit that you yeah, worry yeah. about. Uh, no, I mean, you worry about your exit points as well. Once you've got in, you kind of, a lot of people are really happy to let it run. And that seems to be what we're seeing from investors at the moment. I do want to talk quickly about the sell-off and another comment about timing that I love. Uh, and it's done the rounds a little bit, <laughs> a fantastic a uh, kind of snapshot from Bloomberg opinion, which said there was a hundred percent consensus that the U.S. economy would be in recession within a year. 
<laughs> from the beginning of October last year. Funny that. <laughs> and technically, yep. technically or otherwise, technically the US economy is not in a recession yes. 13 months yes. later. And I love yes. that. 100% consensus. We're definitely going to be in a recession within 12 months. 100% of people were wrong on that one, apparently, according to the data. But let's talk about the sell-off because it's always interesting yep. and it does tend to get people interested, right? They maybe now's the time mm-hmm. of the things a little bit cheaper than they used to be. Is it just about rates and the chance of a recession? Is that what's prompting this? I think largely, mate. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny. Um, as much I'm going to talk about both sides of my mouth. I'm also excited and trying to get people to invest now. If you haven't yet, as much as I would say, be, be invested regularly. You know, I am almost always 100 invested. I don't hold much cash if any, but if you do then I think now is an attractive time to be thinking about putting money to work, not because I know what's happening next, but because if you get a a good price, you should take it. Maybe prices get better, maybe they don't. Maybe they go up, maybe they go down. I think sometimes we get too clever. Uh, If someone offers you, you know, a dollar for 80 cents, you don't hang around saying, maybe it goes to 70, maybe I should wait. If it does, maybe you kick yourself, maybe you don't. But when you're offered an opportunity to get into a a good investment at a good price, you just take it and don't don't look at the gift horse in the mouth. In terms of the, um, the, the market, uh, circumstance. Yeah, look, I mean, we don't. No one ever knows, right? That's the other thing. So when when we talk about these things, uh, you're asked these questions. I'm asked these questions, and we're supposed to somehow know the mind of every investor and and have, have surveyed the market. Oh, obviously, the market's doing this, or the market's doing that. Um, we take our best guess based on reporting, based on behaviour, based on experience, and kind of try and make sense, triangulate the data, and work out what's going on. I think there's a few things. I think. Uh, rates are absolutely first and foremost a concern for large swathes of the market, particularly this is where the US had a much more volatile period than we've had. Higher PE stocks, companies that are trading on higher valuations, are just more sensitive to interest rates. And we don't necessarily get into the algebra here, but uh, for those who know about the idea of a discounted cash flow analysis or just that the time value of money, the fact that you want a dollar now rather than a dollar in 12 months' time, the higher rates are, the more valuable current or near-term profits are, and the less valuable future profits are. Now, if you're a high PE stock or, God forbid, a a loss-making company, uh, and you're going to deliver profits, bigger profits in five or seven or 10 years, when rates are zero, you're happy to wait for that. When rates are, well, Australia, the official cash rate, uh, you know, as a four in front of it, in America, it's five, inflation is still a problem. While we've got that challenge to deal with, investors saying, well, hang on, I'm not going to wait five years to get to get some money because by then, maybe 15, 20, 25% of my investment's been eaten up because of that, the cost of money, the inflation and rates, um, that's problematic. And so that is always going to put pressure on valuations. And in the US where the, the so-called FANG stocks, we don't talk about those very often these days, but the old Facebook, Apple, Netflix, and Google, uh, add, add some others, NVIDIA, of course, recently, and others, uh, you know, those high valuation stocks, those future profits have to do a lot of heavy lifting and it's harder to pay a high price for them. So that, that's the first thing. Second thing is the risk of a recession, as you mentioned. I think that seems to be largely by the by. The US GDP numbers were astonishingly good recently. Um, now, the Fed may end up increasing rates to deal with that, but there seems no near-term likelihood in the US of a recession. Uh, the circumstances are a little bit weaker here, uh, but you kind of got that going on. And I think then... I'd probably throw a third one, mate, which is general pessimism. And it's, it, there's times in the market, I've said before, sometimes uh, the market is so optimistic that you know good news is great and bad news is good. Other times the market is so pessimistic that great news is passable, good news is terrible, and bad news is you know catastrophic. 
And so there is that sense right now of what is the market grabbing onto and saying, oh, I think I think the future is going to be better because of X, Y, and Z. Now, if you're a contrarian investor or someone who likes looking for value, I'm always happy as being the only optimist in a room of pessimists, right? Because things get better over time. And if I'm in a room of pessimists, I'm like, well, if you're all if you're all hating on, on the world and you can't see a bright future, then that means I'm getting some pretty good prices right now. And that's honestly why I'm not timing the market, but I'm very happy to be buying right now because I look around and go, man, there's some companies, sectors, even the economy. Um, investors can't look past the risks, not even the, the certainty, the risks of a downturn or a recession in Australia over the next 12 months at some point. Go out five years, go out seven years, 10 years. Um, imagine investing in 1991 when we had a recession then. 1989, someone would have said, oh, bad times coming, don't invest. 30 years later, you've made 13, 14 times your money. So, you know, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of pessimism. And that's why you do get some of these big rallies because all of a sudden someone turns around and says, actually, maybe things aren't quite that bad. And that's the sort of rebound you get. That's such a cool perspective. And it's really helpful. I'm literally in the middle of writing a presentation. It's very late. Should have had it in a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in which you're talking about big trends. Uh, coming at you. Mm. And I can talk about the big trends that are going to be really negative for markets. <laughs> you know, we've had a sort of multi-decade secular downtrend in inflation yep. and therefore rates. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem when you talk about high PE stocks and the amount of capital that companies have been able to get access to, for want of a better mm-hmm. term, and use yep. Yep. to build and grow and do extraordinary things. Uh, you know, it's far more challenging in an environment where you don't have that. But I was thinking about the optimistic side of it and going, I've got to go find a chart of Apple in 2007, <laughs> 2008, 2009, yes. Yes. because during that period, and you and I were both around during then, Apple was very much considered to be a luxury goods company, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Like they made yeah, laptops yeah. and they made <laughs> iPods, I guess, but they were discretionary items because you could get away a just as functional laptop mm-hmm. for half mm-hmm. the price. And you kind of bought a, a Mac either because you were right into Macs or because they were pretty. Uh, <laughs> and Dells and everything else were just not. <laughs> That's pretty. right. So yeah, ugly. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, that was quite. It's quite an interesting time, and they threw a ton of R and D at the iPad mm. at the time. Um, huge amounts of cash, and you know the share price got absolutely hammered. And then you know this wouldn't have been the worst time to buy it. Fascinating when you think about you know how negative the story was at that time, and then how mm-hmm. things have turned around. So I love that view, and I've I've making my notes here, but you know being the optimist in a room full of pessimists is not a bad thing. And I should say also, most of our investors on NabTrade are pretty much across the idea that you want to buy things when they're a bit cheaper, right? The the idea that yeah, retail absolutely. investors time the market completely wrong has been absolutely dispelled, certainly based mm-hmm. on our customer base, right? They were yep. buying the COVID lows like nobody's business. There were four times more buys than sells during the lows of COVID. So good. So good. And the sells were mostly to rotate into something else. You know, like very little of it went to cash. People were so wildly enthusiastic about the prospect of a massive sell-off. And obviously we were all pretty happy that it bounced back so quickly, but it bounced back so quickly because everyone was buying. And at the moment they're sort of a bit more reluctant, but they like the idea of things coming off a little bit or a little bit more. (laughs) Does that sit well with you? You've made the point that buying something at 20% off, do you really want to wait for an extra five or 10? There's a great Pascal quote that I think it's Pascal. Uh, All of man's problems stem from his inability to sit in a room quietly alone. 
And I think the I've always liked that because it talks about our bias to action. Now, I like a bias to action when people are investing for the long term, when they're taking into decisions, as you say, buying with their ears pinned back in uh, in COVID. I mean, those things are those things are really important. I think though, we can misunderstand the game or, or the rules of the game of investing. And I think that's largely kind of just a biological reality and throwing a bit of hubris there and maybe a bit of I don't know what, but I'm really, really, really strong on that point and the question you raise because if we had a crystal ball, of course I would wait till the price went lower to buy. No one in their right mind buys at a price that's too high. The thing is that while you wait at 80 for the price to go to 70 and it goes to 85, you then say, oh, I've missed out. And then it goes to 90 and then it goes to 100, then it goes to 150. And then like Apple, you know, 16 years later, it's up multiples and you think, you know what? I really should have been buying. Warren Buffett makes the, a great point. I did the numbers years ago. I don't know what the numbers are now. It's probably, the analysis said it was probably five or six years ago. It's not that complicated, but basically Buffett was going to buy Walmart shares and he and the he and the seller disagreed. And this was so long ago. Uh, many of you listeners probably don't realize in the US, shares used to be priced in fractions rather than cents. And so it was something like Buffett missed out um, by like an eighth of a dollar. Something He wanted a price. The seller wanted a higher price. Buffett said no, because he didn't get his price. And that cost Berkshire Hathaway $8 billion. Now, Buffett's dealing with larger amounts of money than, than I am, maybe not you, Gemma, but 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 certainly not uh, the same as somebody I'm dealing in. And uh, and so, you know, the numbers are obviously larger because he's dealing with a larger capital base. But just that idea of trying to be too clever by half, you know, I think, again, if you could do it regularly and reliably, of course you would. If I could do it, I would do it. Um, if, I, if I knew I could wait to 75 cents rather than 80, of course I'd wait. But... Sometimes it's it literally is the gift horse in the mouth thing. I think if you can do really well just buying an index, and you can do even better than that buying either index or companies when they're cheap, and you want to quibble over maybe I can get it cheaper, I kind of think people are missing the big picture. And I, I don't mean that overly critically. If some of your listeners are thinking, "Hang on, back off, Phillips," like that's what I'm trying to do. I, good luck to you and go for it. In my in my opinion, mate, when you're offered a really really good deal. You just take it and say thank you. Yes, you kick yourself if it falls, but the reality is, as I said, if you can harness the market's return, you're going to do very well. If you can get a bit better than that, you're going to do extraordinarily well because compounding works so well over long periods of time. I just really think people kind of to cool their jets a little bit about trying to get to the nth degree. You know, just just take the good price, just take the opportunity, say thank you, uh, make some money and, and walk away. Risking that, you know, another Buffett quote, you talk about people you know, risking what they had and needed for what they didn't have and didn't need. And I kind of think it's a bit like that. If you're getting a great deal, just take the deal. I absolutely love that. Uh, it's a good reminder for all of us, you know, holding out for something. But we have experiences with it, I think, outside the market happens, mm-hmm. you know, if you're trying to buy a home, for example, yes, all yes, the exactly. time. Yeah, yeah. I remember, yeah, we, we spent four years trying to buy a house to raise our kids in. And I'm so sorry to young people listening to this because mm. listening to old people talk about buying houses must be just <laughs> so infuriating. I can't tell you. And I, I apologize. Um, just consider it an, an analogy more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, we looked at a house. We finally found one that we both liked, you know, one of those sorts of stories. And it was hyper competitive because it was a great house in a particular location, very difficult mm-hmm. to find. And we were so clever with the bid we put in. Oh my God, we were so clever because it was effectively a blind auction the day before the auction. Oh, yeah. The 
uh, the agent kind of missed how quickly the market was moving and was like, hey, put your best bid in. I've got a whole heap of bids already. You know, tell us what you want to pay. And we were so clever. And we kind of went five grand above a big round number, knowing that a lot of people would have gone to a big round number. And it turned out someone went 50 grand above the big round number. (laughs) (laughs) And and if we'd been on auction, we might have have felt we could stretch that much. But the irony of that whole story is, in retrospect, that house was cheap as chips compared to mm-hmm. everything two years later. Then that's unfortunately the Sydney property market. Mm. Terrible story. I'm so sorry for young people. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, or just anyone who doesn't. Brutal. Yeah. Trying to play in that market. It's horrific. Uh, but, it, you know, it was such a lesson for us both to go, first of all, when you're in a blind auction, it's very difficult to know how everyone's going to play. Um, if that had been a live auction, we would have been able to work with with better information, obviously, and decide what we could afford. Um, but also, didn't matter how clever we were going to be, we were going to get outbid. That's what happened. We just got outbid anyway. And we, you know, had to pay more later on because that's what yeah. happened in the market, right? We had no control over it at all. It was just an extraordinary experience. Uh, so everyone's here, sitting here with hopefully an existing portfolio, mm-hmm. hopefully some cash on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of investors with cash on the sidelines. At the moment, cash is at a record high. There's obviously a couple of reasons for that. One is you can finally get a return on your cash. Yes, that's true. Uh, so, you know, you're not, the opportunity cost of sitting in cash is much lower than it used to be. Yeah. And there's obviously a comment to be made about whether the return you're getting, particularly after tax, is better than inflation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people sitting there, waiting for a window to buy. So let's take the important caveat about not worrying about too much about timing and not getting Mm -hmm. too clever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I love the Buffett story. That's fantastic. What are you looking at right now? What do you look at and go, do you know what this is? This looks really nice to me. Yeah. So I'm not a value investor, Gemma. I I kind of, um, I try and sit between value and growth. I'm not a, not a dyed in the wool growth investor either. Uh, I like getting good prices, but I also, I like holding businesses for years. And if you're going to do that, you have to find businesses that are going to continue to grow their value over years. Otherwise, you end up getting not much. So I, I find myself really, really in the middle of those two points. But times like this, I think you can look at the market and see opportunity that I think you don't have to work too hard for if you have enough time, if you have the fortitude, and if you know yourself enough to know you're not going to panic. And those are, those are three big caveats, but I want to put them out there because they're important. I am absolutely, I, I have recommended and I own quite a number of retail stocks right now. Now, uh, a decent chunk of your listeners just fell off their proverbial chairs. If you're driving, hopefully you stayed on the road. Uh, because we just talked about the idea of, oh my God, Australia is doing it tough. Uh, the good guys owned by JB Hi-Fi, I think sales around. 10 or 12%. Harvey Norman was down 9%. I own Harvey Norman shares for the record. Um, uh, you know, and you go, who, who in their right mind will buy retail stocks right now? And the answer to me, mate, is that if you look at some of these businesses and you ask yourself a couple of key questions, firstly, will they be around in five years' time? And absent a massive issue, I think the ones I've just mentioned and plenty of others will be around in five years' time. And let's say the worst happens. Let's say we have a recession in 2024. I don't think it's likely, but let's say it happens. And then in theory, the recession lasts for what? Six months, nine months, 12 months. So let's say 12 months. Let's really, really make this awful. Um, now, I hope it doesn't happen for a million reasons, but but for the sake of the investing conversation, let's just, let's just play it through. 
Then go through to 2028. I said five years later. Um, five years, four years after any recession, any decent company that does manage to survive through that period is probably going to be as profitable or more profitable than it was leading into a recession. Now, if you look at the PEs, the price earnings ratios, the valuations, uh, whatever your favorite valuation metric are, there's a dozen of them, dozens, and say, hang on, if I could buy shares in, I'll pick JB Hi-Fi because I don't own them, JB Hi-Fi at single digit, eight, nine times earnings now. And in five years' time, if JB Hi-Fi is as big or bigger, uh, why don't you look back a bit like your Apple story? Exactly, in fact, exactly like your Apple story. I'm glad you told it because it, it's, it's a wonderful example of something that actually already happened. I think it's very likely we look back at JB Hi-Fi in five years' time and kind of go, why did we Why did we not think that JB Hi-Fi would be fine? Why did we not think it would continue to flourish and grow and be more profitable? And why would we knock that back if I could get it for eight or nine times earnings? That seems madness to me. And so I think that's where the opportunity is, one of the opportunities anyways in retail writ large. Now, I wouldn't, so a couple of things, make sure the retailer you're thinking about buying will actually make it through both sales-wise, that you don't, don't have to worry about sales dip, but make sure that you don't have too much debt, make sure they are going to get through the other side. Um, that's really important. But if you consider that as likely and you buy, a again, as always, as a part of a diversified portfolio, let me be very clear on that one as well, then, then what we end up with is a high-quality business, bigger than it was in 2023, and that I got for a knockdown price, the cost in quotes of doing that was having to deal with the emotional pain of seeing that company potentially maybe sales fall maybe they don't maybe the share price falls maybe it doesn't maybe it's vol super volatile it probably will be but that's the sort of business i want to buy and it and it comes down to thinking like a business owner if i was offered jb hi-fi as a whole business and i had the the readies and someone said would you like to buy jb hi-fi for this price i would be like are you kidding do you know how good this business is of course i want to buy it at that price and of course if it's not listed on the stock exchange i don't have to see it's traded price every single day and remind myself like maybe i'm losing money or that it's volatile up and down up and down and i'm just concentrating on the business am i building a bigger business is it growing is it more profitable do i have opportunities to you know deploy capital wisely maybe i get some dividends along the way that's even better so while i while i wait for things to improve i still get some money in the in the back pocket that's a win I think that's the sort of opportunity that you don't have to be super value, a super value investor. Jeremy Hi-Fi is a growth business, I reckon, not hyper growth, but it'll grow. And we're getting it for a good price. That's that to me, if you've got the time and you believe my thesis is right, and if you don't, then don't do it. Uh, but if you do, then I think that's a real opportunity. Um, second area I think is also worth looking at, and we can go back to either of those uh, in time, is is technology broadly and for the same kind of reasons. We saw tech absolutely smashed over the last couple of years. Part of the reason the American market's been more volatile than Australia is, as I said, they have more of these tech companies. And so we don't see the the swings for our banks and miners. Uh, we see them in the tech sector. Some of your listeners who are tech investors will know this very, very well, uh, that you know when the US market moves, it's normally on the back of tech. Here, we have a different dynamic. So, uh, but the tech sector has been smashed and some of it, frankly, rightly so. Some of it was the cheap money you talked about, the borrowing at zero or, or raising capital with, you know, no, no meaningful uh, cost because everyone was throwing money at you. They desperately needed to get a return. Great time to be a small startup trying to grow. Unfortunately, when the worm turned on that and it did, we saw three or four of those, you know, one hour grocery delivery mobs go to the wall. We're seeing some uh, ASX listed technology companies really struggling. There's lots of capital raising still happening right now. So don't go in boots and all and don't go in blindly. But maybe the bathwater is probably the, the tech issue right now. 
And I think if you find some quality businesses that the market's hating on because they've been caught up with the same downdraft, but they are well capitalized, i.e. they've got plenty of money, uh, maybe they're profitable, or maybe they're going to get to profit soon enough. These are the sort of businesses I think as they continue to recover uh, will do will do very nicely. I'll throw you a third one too, Jim. So there's a long answer, but we can pick this apart if you want to. The other thing I think it's worth thinking about is a bit like retail generally, but in this case, a, a subset is think about the stories that no one's telling because the the general kind of uh, uh, zeitgeist has moved on. And I'm I think I own uh, one or two pure play uh, e-commerce players, one in the US, one in Australia. Uh, sorry, two in the US, one in Australia. Um, I think e-commerce is going to continue to be a massive story for years. And no one's talking about it right now for a whole lot of reasons, but largely because the COVID boom and bust cycle has meant you can't draw a straight line through e-commerce sales and see them growing. But whether you own a pure play e-commerce player or a retailer that's doing well in e-commerce, I would suspect in 10 years' time, 12 years' time, we will be shocked by the amount of product we're buying online um, because the trend is there. I think we all know the trend's there, but we kind of don't think about it from a, from a an investing perspective right now. And I think some of those trends that continue, the underlying secular trend continues, even if we don't see it or hear about it every day, I would suspect in maybe a year's time or so, uh, maybe longer, the headlines come back because the year-on-year -year growth all of a sudden looks impressive again. And it's one of those overnight successes that will have been happening uh, under our feet the whole way through. That's such an interesting one. I went shopping in person for the first time in a very long time, <laughs> but I had my children with me and it reminded me why I like it. <laughs> I, mean, I hear that. It's just so hard. It cost me an absolute fortune. Yeah. Yeah. I just paid for shipping. <laughs> so instead, I paid for thousands of little things and came home really stressed and cranky. It's great. Oh, that's so um, <laughs> So it's a godsend for parents, e-commerce, mm -hmm. in my view. It really it's, is. Uh, pester power is real, and it's not <laughs> just about the sweets at the checkout. It's uh, it's a big deal. Yeah, I find your thoughts on all of that stuff super interesting, uh, and particularly the technology piece. Partly because when you look at the US, you've got the sort of Magnificent Seven, we were calling Magnificent Seven. For anyone who missed it, Magnificent Seven was a movie from <laughs> I don't know what sixties. 70s Probably, maybe yeah. Yul yeah. Brunner and yes, Stars. yes. yeah it, like it's quite extraordinary film <laughs> uh anyway so that explains why it's called the Magnificent Seven in case you missed it anyway uh those top seven companies in the U.S. you've got your Microsoft and anything that's cloud related and particularly has a an eye on AI and can spin a good story when you're talking about the stories that no one's telling. Everyone is telling yes. an AI story at the moment, have hidden a lot of destruction in the tech space. Yes. So when you look at the NASDAQ, it doesn't look that bad. <laughs> You've got seven companies <laughs> yes, driving exactly. the entire market mm -hmm. and the S&P 493 <laughs> is like dead flat for the year. It's gone nowhere. Yeah, uh, yeah. But the rest of the market, the market as a whole looks amazing. And you can make two arguments there. One is you, you have to be a miraculous stock picker. And if you'd only owned those seven, you would have done extremely well. Or the other is, you know, just buy the market and you'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, it depends on how you want to view it really. One question I did want to ask you is, and as you say, 
you don't want to focus too much on price, but you also don't want to dramatically overpay for things, right? There's yes, lots of things. 100%. And I, you know, you and I have spoken many times in the past and you've done a wonderful job of going, I like that, but it's crazy expensive, so I'm mm-hmm. not going to buy it. <laughs> um, we, did, we did a conversation about the wax stocks. Yes. It's really funny looking back and going, no one talks about wax anymore. Uh, that's not a thing that we discussed. That was when we had a brief period of trying to uh, <laughs> elevate our tech sector to be something similar to the US. Didn't quite get that, but we gave it a go. And uh, you made the point that most of them were just far too expensive. The multiples were crazy and you just couldn't justify them. Is there anything at the moment you're looking at going, if there were a sell-off, would this fall back into the kind of category where I like the business and I'm willing to pay that much for it? Yeah, so you know what's uh, so just quickly anecdote for fun uh, and apologies to who owns them, uh, but we talk about wax and Afterpay was one of those. Uh, you all know this, Gemma, but Block, the business that bought Afterpay, is now worth less market cap wise than it paid for Afterpay uh, way back at the peak. Um, so a reminder that even the best companies can you can pay too much for. Um, I love the- that. Thank you for bringing that up. Not least because. Uh, NAB trade investors did so stupidly well out of that. Oh, nice. I cannot tell you. Average buy price for Afterpay the year before uh, <laughs> yeah. that transaction went through was $40. Oh, and yeah. obviously the average buy price before that was much lower. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but people bought it at at most a third so of what it was sold for. Now, you don't get a lot of those windows in your life, but goodness, yeah, they're nice when they come along. Right. And the vast majority of people took the cash. That's great, um, and, that's, and that love. was the that was absolutely the deal was taking the money because if you yeah, took yeah. the shares, then that was beautiful. Yeah. And, and look, uh, I, know, I know what the future will be, obviously. That so we don't we don't necessarily you know anything could happen from here. I'm always mindful that whenever you whenever you talk about stocks, you, you take two data points, right? The then yeah. and the now, and then it's it, there are journeys on the way through, and they're frankly what happens from here. Uh, again, back to your Apple story, right? We could have we could have been talking about how terrible Apple was in 2007 and eight, and how far the share price had fallen, and all that kind of stuff. And of course, the fullness of time showed a very very different story. Um, in terms of your question about the uh, the stuff, if it falls, here's the biggest problem with this, right? Um, so I will answer it, but it's also worth thinking about as an investor your personality. When the market falls, I, you know, one this is not my answer, but one of the one of the best businesses on the ASX, I think, by a decent margin, is Woolworths as a business, not as an investment, but as a business. And every now and again, I think to myself, if the, if the share price fell, I'd, I'd buy some Woolly shares because I just think it's it's bulletproof. It, the, the cash generation is great. Um, it, it, the culture is, in, is excellent. It's a really, really good business. But here's the thing. If the circumstances arise that Woolies falls 20%, uh, maybe maybe it's it's something company specific and then you've got to work out whether that, that issue is real or, or temporary or permanent or temporary. The other thing, though, is if, if Woolies falls 20% because the market falls 40%, then something else has fallen by 50 or 60%. And so the challenge is always as an investor to say, the time at which I want to buy those great companies at a, at a decent discount is probably when there's other companies on an even bigger discount. And so I'm going to have to make the decision at that point, what's the most attractive use for a, a fixed, uh, unfortunately, fixed amount of capital that I've got to deploy at that period of time. If it's a thousand bucks, what am I going to spend the thousand dollars on? Am I going to buy Woolies at a bit of a discount or something else at an even bigger discount because the market's lost its collective marbles? And so that's always a really, really hard decision. It's just something I kind of I'll throw out there as a as a as a thought bubble. While then I get to your answer. Um, I yes, there's there is uh, there are a lot of companies I think are, are great businesses. I think CSL and ResMed are two right now that I think are fascinating opportunities. And my suggest my speculation is that the market has got way carried away 
with the the Ozempic, the the weight loss drug risk. It's not zero. It's absolutely real. There are always risks with every single investment. I'm not saying it can't happen or won't happen, but I think when you lop off the sort of you know proportions of share price that have fallen for those two companies because of the possible risk of one super early drug that may or may not have a meaningful impact on the business. Um, when you're pricing in all the bad news and none of the fact that it mightn't be that, that bad, if I could have that trade over and over again, I'd take it every time because I'll be wrong sometimes. I'll be right far more often. I think the money to be made is, is, is far larger. Speaking of medical technology, I'll stay with Cochlear too. Really, really good business. Uh, literally people having that thing implanted in their heads, the long-term potential of that obviously great for those patients by the way i don't want to gloss over that um but you got a customer for life and think about the the growing affluence around the world um the the the, the increasing diagnosis of those sort of things particularly in the developing world and and um and others the access to those sort of treatments is only going to continue to grow and those customers are going to stay for life so they are they are three really really great businesses that i think are are fascinating and certainly um worth keeping on on the radar what we're saying in medtech, Nanosonics is another one. Uh, the the business has really done a very nice job of growing its its market uh, size um, and penetration. That will continue, I think, to be a long term winner um, as a business. Again, the price is not cheap, so if you're going to buy the shares, be mindful of that. But at a, at a significant drop, you'd absolutely go and gobble up some of those. I think. Um, I think that's a really, really interesting, interesting place to be to be looking. Um, so that's probably they're probably kind of the, at the quality end of the spectrum. Uh, the sort of companies I think are are really, really worth worth jumping into. Um, Lavisa is probably in, in the retail space. I mentioned retail. Lavisa has not been whacked anywhere near as hard. The international expansion opportunity for Lavisa is huge and risky. So, but and, and both those things are true at the same time. It, it, it's also pretty volatile. If you are wanting to put something on your watch list that maybe doesn't have the same, you know, JB and Harvey Norman are beaten down, you know, uh, desperately trying to get through the sort of economic circumstance. LaVisa is, is still growing from strength to strength because in that expansion phase, I think that's a really, really interesting business. And I think it's got plenty of opportunity if it if it can fulfill that that opportunity. Um, all right, if it's okay, Gemma, take a really quick tangent from this point because I think one thing I wanted to mention is you mentioned Apple in 07. I did um, some work years ago now looking at Apple specifically, but also uh, Flexi Group, the business that now is hum and has done terribly since. But uh, back in that period of time, those two businesses grew during the, the GFC, during what was not quite a recession in Australia, but a really tough economic time. And you think, well, hang on. We almost we had one negative quarter of economic growth. The other one was barely positive. Things were bumping along the bottom. How did Flexi Group grow if it's, if it's lending for consumer products? And the answer actually was that it was growing market share. It, it was a growing category and it was growing market share in that category as the um, disruptor, as the new player. And so if you think about the economy that we're going to be going into and through, as much as I've highlighted a couple of you know big dominant retailers, if you can find growing businesses that are growing you know, in a, in a secular way, but not relying on the secular economy to grow, but simply growing their market share, growing their their business. Think about Nanosonics or um, uh, Ordinate is another one with their with their Dante uh, audio visual technology. They are growing in a market that will continue to the, the market itself may not grow rapidly, just as consumer electronics and home homewares didn't grow rapidly in two thousand seven eight. But Flexi Group grew why? Because it was providing a new service and it had a small market share and it was going to grow into be a larger company. Apple similarly. 
while it wasn't growing market share per se, although it was doing that, it was in a, in a segment, you know, phones literally, but, but you know, effectively small computers that had the access to the world's information plus video calling and everything else. Uh, when, you, when you've got a growth sector, a growth story that is not reliant on economic growth, but is growing despite or independent of that, that's another way to think about how to invest or how to add to your portfolio at a time when the market is not necessarily cooperating, the economy is not cooperating. Uh, and again, I don't mean any growth company is worth buying or any small company is worth buying, but just a couple of examples of where you can look at companies that exist and are doing really good things and say, well, hang on, if they're going to be meaningfully bigger in five years' time and they're probably going to keep growing even at a slightly reduced rate during any sort of economic downturn because they are gaining market share or they are disrupting an industry, uh, that can still be a really profitable way to go. Just remember, as you've already pointed out, doesn't mean the share price will necessarily respond directly. But if you find a business that's growing, when the market does come around, uh, you'll own a much more valuable piece of uh, piece of investment <laughs> uh, uh, portfolio. Uh, those shares will be worth more in the fullness of time because of that dynamic that's actually happening, not exactly under the water, but certainly despite the, the broader volatility in, in the stock market itself. I love that. I love you went to the the medical slash med tech space because it's certainly one that we seem to be seeing a lot of attention given to, not necessarily yeah. huge amounts of buying, but people really going, oh, I really wanted to buy this for a while. Maybe now's mm-hmm. the time. Uh, <laughs> and also your point that you're trying to find something that's going to grow regardless of what's going on in the macro environment. And there are companies that do it, do it so well. Uh, you mentioned Buffett at the beginning and he has always used the uh, when the tide goes out, you can see who's doing <laughs> naked. But on the flip side of that, when the tide goes out, you can see the companies that know how to batten down the hatches and know I'm mixing a lot of metaphors here, so I apologise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, then, you know, they know how to grow and construct a business that is sustainable regardless mm-hmm, of the environment. Mm-hmm. The one that I love, just think it's funny more than anything else, is Uber when it came to market. So everyone <laughs> knows Uber. Everyone's caught an Uber perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the company floated at an extraordinary multiple, I don't know, mm-hmm. you can't even call it a multiple, can you? <laughs> they openly said in the prospectus that the company may never turn a profit. Mm-hmm. Like this is an unprofitable company. And it may well stay that way, which as an investor is not exactly what you hope to see in a company you're buying when it comes to market. People bought it, it anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, Uber's turning a profit. Yeah. Uh, when the world changes and you can't yeah. get access to infinite amounts of capital despite being unprofitable yeah. or you are unprofitable, thankfully, because you've had access to infinite amounts of capital, you learn very quickly how to turn a profit. And I find that a fascinating example, not promising they're always going to be profitable, (laughs) but simply the fact that they worked it out pretty sharpish when they couldn't get zero interest rates and huge amounts of private equity anymore. Uh, It's quite interesting. Going to the other end, and I do think about this personally a bit, partly because a couple of times, uh, and I'm not in a position to give opinions on individual stocks, but Sometimes you can imply how you feel about things in a public (laughs) forum without saying anything. Uh, Having been asked about companies that Mm. have been sold off really hard Mm. and yet it's pretty hard to see a reason to pick them up. I tend to be very cautious about the falling knives. Obviously we're never sure whether it's a falling knife or just a (laughs) fantastic discount. It's always 
Always going to be uh, one that you can't be quite certain which way it's going to play out for the ones in the financial services industry because that's obviously where I work and I know them a little bit better than a lot of other sectors. Yeah. Uh, and they've been quite a handful, certainly fund managers, listed fund managers uh, that have fallen from heady, heady heights and stock pickers were saying this looks like really good value when they were down 60%, 70% but they've fallen 90. Uh, and a company like AMP, for example, which is more diversified funds management and financial planning and various other things, you look at those when you know the industry fairly well and go, God, that has to get extremely cheap for me to think about it. And even then I probably wouldn't touch it. Anything in that space for you where you go, it's just not for me. I can't see a price <laughs> at which I need to hold this. Yeah, that's that's a really great question, Gemma. And I think um, I want to go back to your when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. Um, because I think the the tide is the share price, and the tide is the uh, commentary in the media and you know forums and other places. And that's that's all the noise, right? And that noise is noise necessarily wrong. It's just not always linked to the companies themselves. And the swimming naked bit really comes down to actually that's the fundamentals of the business that you own or you're considering buying, and that's where that's where the, the falling knife thing. I think it's I think it's real. Look, I'm not. I've got a pretty cast iron stomach when it comes to volatility, so I don't mind buying something having it fall. I don't love it. Like I'd rather it didn't, but I'm I'm okay with that. But what I don't do is just look at the level of the tide <laughs> to, to again torture the the metaphor to the absolute end of its uh, potential. Um, uh, you know, a, a company that drops 80% because it deserves to is, you know, because it's just a bad business. There is no price for some of those that are that are worth paying, right? And that's the that's that is the value trap. That's the one that goes, hey, look how far we've fallen. Look how things are working. Uh, I, I'm going to get a great deal here because it's down. And I, I said before that you know we get the two data points, the then and the now. There's a real human tendency to look at a past share price and write that in stone because it was a real number, right? So it's not unreasonable to do that. But the idea that somehow that price was right, and therefore that's my reference point. It was 100, now it's 50, therefore it's fallen in half, therefore maybe it's cheap. Maybe it's important because maybe it was just massively overvalued at 100. Again, back to, we take the afterpay example. I mean, there's so many examples of of the, you you and I've seen many, many, many fads in the investing world over time. And the end of a fad doesn't suggest something's cheap, it just suggests that it was a fad. On the other hand, you do see plenty of businesses, and again, let's go back to your Apple example because I love it, where you know it was right to say, gee, that share price is down a lot. Wow, that's you know a buying opportunity because this is a great quality business. Look at what it does. Look how popular it is. Look how deeply. I, I miss the Apple run-up, I've got to tell you, mate, because the one thing I learned from, from that and others is never underestimate, I'll say this half tongue-in-cheek, never underestimate the power of a cult, right? Because the Apple fanboys and girls – uh, I, I don't know if you can distinguish that from a cult. If, if you were, if you're given the two examples with you know with a brown paper bag and say which one's the cult, which one's not, they love the hell out of these things because they just work and they're beautiful and they're cool and they're trendy and they their interoperability is great and it's just fantastic, right? So I, I, when I looked at the price in the past at higher prices, I kind of went, how much more has this got to go? And what I didn't account for was the value of the fan base, which is just phenomenal. And so we see something like that happen. If you looked at the fundamentals of Apple, you would have said, okay, well, this is actually a great business and it's not going anywhere. And isn't it going to continue to grow and be relevant and popular? Yeah, it probably is. Now compare that with some others. And, and let's not use Afterpay specifically, but let's use the rest of the buy now, pay later sector. 
that just every, what was it, nine or 10 of them on the ASX at one point? Uh, it was going to be the biggest thing since sliced bread. Revolutionize this, revolutionize that. I don't know if I said it at the podcast at the time. My view is and remains that the buy now, pay later option will become a feature of someone else's product, not a standalone product in itself. Now, that may still not come to pass, or maybe it will. But in that case, you say, well, hang on, what are the fundamentals of these businesses that as they fall suggest that somehow they're now cheap? And cheap can't be just cheaper than they were. And cheaper than they were is true. It doesn't make it cheaper in, in itself. Something that's worth 10, if it falls from 100 to 50, is still five times overvalued. And so that's really, really important. Um, I will answer your question directly. Uh, I'm with you on AMP, by the way. Uh, there are just some really rubbish businesses. I find it difficult to invest in a business that is not growing its top line, which sounds obvious, but if you're shrinking out of, outside, maybe, you know, economic circumstance like a recession, um, if you're not more relevant to more people, then where what leg are you standing on? Uh, businesses with too much debt leave me cold because, Again, the lesson we kind of forgot over 30 years without a proper recession is that business businesses fail and, and interest rates go up and debt will be an absolute millstone around the neck of a business that does find itself in temporary trouble. Uh, being around to, to, to fight a second or third war, Microsoft's a great example of this. They spent 15 years in the wilderness. They made a couple of big missteps strategically, but had enough cash left over to actually then become a, reinvent themselves as a cloud company. Now the, the, the results are astonishingly good. Uh, so those are... Those are some really good businesses. I will anger slash upset some of your listeners, but that's what I'm here for, uh, to tell the truth, or at least my version of it. Uh, I think the lithium space is still very, very concerning to me in terms of valuation. I would be very careful about what you expect from that. Uh, not because I know what's going to happen, because I don't know what's going to happen. It could go any of a dozen different ways. And the more certain you are about something, the, the more careful you should be about your own points of view, generally speaking, because uh, it means you may not be considering the, the downsides meaningfully enough. So that's probably that's probably the big one. Um, i trying to think what else is exciting right now that people might be waiting for a full to kind of pounce on. Uh, I think that's probably... Look, you know, the good thing about a dip is there's, there's more on, on sale than has been for a while. Uh, so there's not a lot that seems obviously expensive to me. Be a little bit careful about, uh, here's one just as a, a slight aside, but to answer your question, be careful about companies with resetting debt. Uh, we know that fixed rate mortgages have become variable and people are paying a lot more on those. A lot of companies have signed on to two, three, five-year debt uh, that'll roll over at some point in the next two or three years. And when it does, will attract a meaningfully higher interest rate. Uh, and when that happens, the P&L, the profit loss statement, will look a bit different because that debt will take up a, a chunk of profit as the as the interest bill grows. So just be a little bit careful of that as well. Some things that look cheap now may look meaningfully more expensive when that debt resets and those companies have to deal with, like mortgage payers have to deal with, uh, those higher resetting repayments uh, that really can take a chunk out of profit. Oh, it's such a good example and such a good comment about debt. You know, we've become quite focused on debt at mm -hmm. an individual level over the last yeah. 12 to 18 months, but there does seem to be uh, less focus on corporate debt. And you and I will both remember this and others may not be familiar with it. And I'm sorry if we sound like old people, uh, <laughs> but it is so true. I think about all the people who used to say this stuff when I was young in markets. I'd be like, oh my God, please. <laughs> uh, but it's you know, it's kind of useful to look at the lessons of the past. There was for a really long time the expression lazy balance sheet. Yes. It yes. just basically meant you had a lot of cash and you had not borrowed mm -hmm. to leverage up your business. 
lazy balance sheet. Very, you know, a highly critical term, right? The assumption mm-hmm. was that businesses should be leveraging to grow as much as possible. Haven't heard that expression for a while, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is what happens when rates rise, right? But it, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we were both around during the GFC and watched companies absolutely go to the wall. It was the property trusts mostly go to the wall because they didn't realise just how expensive it was going to be to refinance their debt and they were not prepared for what came. Yep. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think um, speaking of being old, mate, and sounding old, it's kind of one, you know, everyone wants to take risk. I, I, I work with some people who aren't in the investing team at The Motley Fool, and I'm not going to name them because um, I love them, uh, but uh, who have kind of said to me kind of quietly side of desk, I, I kind of thought I wanted to be this high-growth investor and I kind of bought these things because everything was going well and all of a sudden I realised I don't have the risk tolerance I thought I had. And I think that's at a corporate level, at a debt level, it really – the other thing is you also know that the the top is near in the market when when people are saying that Warren Buffett's lost it. You know, that that whole idea of like, oh, poor old old-fashioned Warren, he doesn't get it anymore. He doesn't really know what's going on. It happened in 1999. It happened during the GFC. You know, the, the kind of – the sensible, boring, but really profitable investing strategies don't tend to change. The, the application of them absolutely changes because new sectors are born, new companies are born, you have to adapt them. But that idea of, as you say, mate, having having enough cash on the sidelines to kind of actually pay the bills where, you know, it's a lazy balance sheet nine years out of 10, but that 10th year, you don't go broke. You know, we talk about survivorship bias a lot in companies or in fund management and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's a massively underrated part of wealth creation is not having to go back to zero. If you can survive and potentially even thrive. I mean, I mentioned Harvey Norman. It made its name during the 90s recession, basically because it was the only one left standing. And so it gobbled up in the early 80s too. It, it just kind of gobbled up competitors, either either buying them out or just simply when they went broke, taking their market share just because it was still around. And that sounds boring in the good times. When the, when the go-go years are here and everyone's talking about the growth companies, no one's talking about the other stuff. It, it, you know, we, finance and economics is not very good at learning lessons of history. You know, if we're if we're if, if our job would be historians, we'd all be we'd all be fired because we forget so quickly. We get caught up with the new thing, and the old hat stuff feels old hat. And then all of a sudden, we relearn those lessons. By the way, here's the contrarian take on this. Uh, it goes back to kind of the tech stuff I mentioned. Get ready for the next leg of growth. You know, we don't don't risk the balance sheet. Obviously, <laughs> don't do anything stupid personally in your portfolio, but. We will find out the next year or two, everyone is a new Buffett acolyte and everyone uh, wants to have enough cash and they should. But also while they're spending that time looking at the revision mirror on this one, the next growth leg will start and people will wait until that's definitely there to jump in and then around and around will go. So just keep very well aware of, yes, the, the basic fundamentals, the boring, you know, they're called the hygiene factors they used to call them. You know, just, just do the simple things right because that's necessary. That's a ticket to the dance stuff. But also, don't get so caught up with that. Miss the opportunity when growth returns, and it will because it does. Uh, don't miss the opportunity to take advantage of that. Don't be in cash personally, in my view, for too long, waiting for the good times to come. Don't you know? Be 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 prudent, but don't be so conservative that you miss the recovery. Because as I said, the market goes up about nine percent a year on average. Um, you know, don't stay on the sidelines. Don't miss those things when they come because that's where the money will be made by those who are prepared literally financially prepared i.e. have the cash have the facility have be ready but also mentally and emotionally prepared uh, to take the next part of the journey i absolutely love that and i think 
We all have a bit of a view that things are going to get a little bit more challenging. Certainly anyone who listened to my conversation with Alan Oster, that's mm. NAB's view. Mm. Uh but we turn a corner and businesses, if you're a business owner, you know this, right, that when things get really difficult, if you're cashed up, that's your best time. <laughs> that's your opportunity <laughs> to take the market share, to take out your competitors, to do incredible things. And as an investor, we hope very much that you're taking the same view. Scott, as I said at the beginning, you're a great follow in social media and you write prolifically and you put a lot of stuff out in the world. Where do people go to find out more about you and The Motley Fool? Uh, thank you, Jimmy. You're very kind. Uh, I am on Twitter mostly because it's kind of you get to do these little short things. Uh, TMF Scott P is my handle there. Uh, on the same in Instagram and threads uh, for those who are in those platforms. Uh, I'm on Facebook at Scott Phillips Money. Um, I would just say very quickly, people know this, um, but just be careful of imitators. I've had my account spoofed a dozen times and people just changing one character or one letter. So if you're going to look for it, make sure you type that in. Um, you know, it's the old koshy thing. People take their take their accounts and try and try and make them up. Uh, so do, yeah, TMF Scott P or Scott Phillips Money. Um, fool.com.au is the company website. You can sign up to our Take Stock uh, newsletter, which is where I do write a lot of my stuff. Um, fair warning, there's a whole lot of marketing that comes with that. So I don't want anyone to be misled. It's not just a, a newsletter. Uh, you join the marketing mailing list at the same time and you've probably seen some Motley Fool marketing in your time, I would assume, if you're listening to this. So uh, so fair warning on that one. Uh, but lots of lots of stuff for free elsewhere. That's free, obviously, as well, but it, but it comes with that marketing. Uh, but yeah, mate, and obviously on your wonderful podcast as well. It is always so wonderful to have you. Uh, Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Gemma. It's been awesome. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We love the feedback that you give us. The questions, the topics you'd like to hear about, the people you'd like to hear from. We know Scott's always super popular, but anything else that is on your mind, we do read it. Uh, please just email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.